Okay. Uh, please open your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy. You'd be forgiven if they just open naturally to Revelation, but we finished that series, and so now we're starting something new. Um, open up to 1 Timothy. Uh, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, um, it's actually on page 991, so if that's helpful. Uh, we're starting a new series today that's going to take us through the end of the year, and I'm calling it Bucket List. Nine things I want to tell you before I die. Uh, and when I say that, I'm not intended to be morbid or uh, overly dramatic. I'm not planning on dying by the end of the year, but I was just thinking and praying about what to teach after Revelation. And I was struck by this question. Uh, what would I preach if it were the last thing I would ever preach? You know, what, what would I preach if I only had you know, I just looked at the calendar and said, okay, all the way up to Christmas, that's nine weeks. What if that was it? What if that was the last time I ever got to stand in a pulpit and communicate anything to you? Uh, what would I really want to say over these next nine weeks? As I got to think, I thought, that's, that's a decent question. That's a fairly uh, good thing to explore because, you know, even though I'm not planning on dying by the end of the year or going anywhere um, at all, um, anything could happen. Any Sunday could be my last, could be your last. Um, you know, any one of us could get a job somewhere else and in the next week be gone. Um, any, we could get sick, not be able to come anymore, get hit by a bus. Anything could happen. And so I just thought, well, okay, after six and a half years of ministry, I certainly don't have everything figured out. But I think I've learned enough that at least I have something of value to say, I think these things, and sort of arbitrarily nine things, are some of the most important things that we have to get, we have to understand about being a Christian. And so each sermon, that's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to work through one book all the way through. Um, we'll start that up again in January. I'll be going from different texts from, uh, week to week. But I just wanted to find, uh, answer this question. What, what would I preach for the last thing I'd ever preached? So today is the first thing on my bucket list. What, what is it? It'd be kind of a fun game, I think, to have some of you guess. <laughs> what, what would be the first thing that Dan would talk about? And hopefully it's not a big surprise that the first thing I want to talk about is the gospel. I desperately want you to understand the gospel. But I want to talk about it in a way today, I want to say it in such a way today that hopefully shocks you a little bit. And shocks you in a good way into realizing deep down how amazing and astonishing the gospel really is. So the way I want to say it today is a way that I learned from uh, a couple other pastors. One guy named Jack Miller and one of his disciples, Tim Keller. And it goes like this. Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever imagined. And at the same time, more loved than you ever dared to dream. Cheer up. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever imagined. And at the same time, more loved than you ever dared to dream. Our passage this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Please look there with me this morning. 1 Timothy is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to one of his protégés, Timothy. Timothy was a younger pastor, and in this letter, Paul gives him some basic instructions in the faith. And in our passage, he gives a powerful summary of the gospel. So hear what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, 
persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right. The first thing you need to know is that you are a worse sinner than you ever imagined. All right, I get it. That's uncomfortable. Stay with me. It's going to be worth it. Our passage begins with Paul giving some biographical information. Many of you probably know the story, but let me just recap. If you want the whole thing, you can read about it in the book of Acts. But Paul, the guy who wrote 1 Timothy, wasn't always called Paul. He was originally called Saul. And back when he was called Saul, he was a nasty, nasty guy. Bad guy. We first meet Saul when he's standing around watching a mob kill an innocent man by throwing stones at him. Okay? They killed Stephen. Stephen was this godly guy, loved Jesus, loved the poor. He devoted his life to caring for the poor. And because of his faith in Jesus, all these guys pick up stones and they throw the stones at him until they kill him. And Saul is standing there holding their coats and approving of everything that they're doing. In fact, he's so excited about what they're doing, he decides to start doing it himself on a larger scale. So he, he becomes the number one persecutor of the church, doing everything he can to stop Christianity from spreading. He does it in his hometown, but it's not enough for him to do it there, uh, arresting and killing Christians that he runs across. He decides to go to other towns and to arrest and kill Christians that are there. And so on one of these trips, one of these hunting trips to get Christians on the road to a town called Damascus, he has a vision and he encounters the risen Jesus. And in that moment, Saul's life changed 180 degrees. Instead of persecuting Christians and trying to kill them, he became a Christian and now became the number one proponent of Christianity. The number one missionary going all around uh, the known world, uh, sacrificing his body now to take the gospel to other people. And to mark that significant change in his life, he began going by the name of Paul. Now, that's the backstory that, that Timothy knows well and that many of you know well. And he, he refers to it in verses 12 through 14. He says, I'm thankful to Jesus. And then verse 13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, you know my story, you know this. I, I, was a, I was a sinner, I did bad things, but then God showed mercy to me. It's a very familiar tale. But then in verse 15, Paul says something that is truly shocking. In verse 15, he says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Did you catch what he says there? He says, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am 
the foremost, of whom I am the chief, of whom I am the, uh, the first. I am the worst sinner in the world. That's what Paul says. Okay, and this is shocking. It's shocking for at least two reasons. First of all, it's shocking because Paul says this about himself. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I am the worst sinner in the world. And did you notice that? Did you notice the, the tense that he uses there? I don't get too technical, but did you notice that he says, uh, Christ came to sa- into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He doesn't say of whom I was the foremost. I used to be really bad, but now I'm okay. He says, of whom I am the foremost. He's not just talking about himself in the past tense when he used to be bad, but now he's good. He's saying, I, Paul, the Apostle Paul, am right now the worst sinner in the world. Shocking. Maybe you could write it off if it was a one-time thing. But he says this all over the place. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was writing a letter to the Corinthians, and they had these guys running around calling themselves super apostles. And they're saying, you should listen to us because we're super apostles. We're these amazing apostles. You should listen. And so Paul is trying to write to say, don't listen to the super apostles. They're nobody. And you would think that Paul would say, those guys aren't super apostles. I'm the super apostle. Those guys got nothing. I'm the one with all the authority. I saw Jesus in a vision. Like he called me. I'm the super apostle. It's not what he says. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, verse 9, He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul says, yeah, I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's writing a letter to the Ephesians and explaining how wonderful it is to be a Christian. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says this, to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the riches of Christ. And and, and hear this rightly. When we hear the word saint, we often think of like people who are super Christians, right? Saint Teresa, Saint whatever. Okay, in Bible speak, in New Testament language, a saint is just a Christian. So he's saying, when he says, I'm the least of the saints, he's not saying I'm the least of the super special people. He's saying, I'm the least of all Christians. He's saying, to me, Can you believe it? Though I am the least of all Christians, God has given me this grace. And then here in 1 Timothy, it's even more remarkable. It says, I am the chief of sinners. Right? So so he's an apostle, but "Ah, I'm the least of the apostles. Oh, Paul, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm the least of the Christians. You know what? If you line me up, with all the sinners in the world, by rank of relative sinfulness, I'm at the very end. That's what Paul says. Now, don't you want to kind of take him aside and say, Paul, buddy, have you heard about self-esteem? I'm a little worried about your self-concept. You're a little hard on yourself. Maybe you need to uh, see a counselor and and learn to forgive yourself. I mean, Paul, it seems like you're a little hung up on thinking that you're pretty bad. Because really, Paul, you're, you're pretty good, right? I mean, I know you did some stuff in the past that was bad, but look at all the good that you've done since then. You've traveled all over the world. You've shared the gospel with thousands of people. You've planted churches. You've endured persecution. Paul, you have changed lives. Paul, you wrote most of the New Testament. 
you think that you're the worst sinner, but most Christians, if surveyed, would put you number two after Jesus. That's what we would say to Paul. Paul, think more highly of yourself. You're not that bad. But Paul says, no, 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 this is true. I am the foremost sinner. That's the first shocking thing, that Paul would say that about himself. But the second shocking thing is that Paul is not only talking about himself, he's talking about you and me too. The beginning of verse 15, back in 1 Timothy 1, says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That little phrase is a, uh, an introduction that Paul uses a couple times in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and in Titus. All these letters when he's writing to his protégés, kind of giving them some basic foundational information about the Christian life. And, and every time he uses that little introduction, what follows is a foundational truth that's applicable to all Christians. That's why he says it. He says, this saying, this thing I'm about to tell you, is trustworthy. This is true, and it's deserving of full acceptance. Everybody should believe this. Okay, so he sets it up. He says, this thing I'm about to tell you is really important. And, and we would totally agree with the first part that comes right after this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. That is a trustworthy statement that is deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. But it doesn't stop there. The next phrase, he says, of whom I am the foremost. What this means is that Paul is not just saying that he is a great sinner. He's saying this is a universal truth. This is a confession that all Christians make. I am a great sinner. Just as much as we all affirm Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, we also affirm of whom I am the foremost. So I, Dan Lehman, am meant to say and believe Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Dan Lehman, am the foremost. And you, Christian, are meant to say and believe Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, insert your name here, am the foremost. According to the Bible, we are far worse sinners than we think we are. This is not how we like to think of ourselves. I don't like to think of myself as the worst sinner in the world. I actually like to think of myself as being pretty good. Honest, if we're being honest, I like to think of myself as the best person in the world. Okay. I say, yeah, sure, I, I've got some rough edges. I know I'm not perfect. I'm not going to say I'm perfect. I'm maybe 90% there. Okay, I'm pulling a solid B+. I've got some rough edges, you know, and I've, I've got some problems, but, but basically I'm better than a lot of people. I'm, I'm not worse than everyone. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And in that mindset, I would say, okay, if Jesus wants to come in and give me some extra credit, that's great. I know I'm not perfect. If I'm doing a 90%, if Jesus wants to bump me up to 100, that'd be amazing. I could use that. If he wants to smooth off some of the rough edges, that'd be great. I'd appreciate that. But that's all I really need. And sometimes we all think that, right? I'm not that bad. I just need a little extra credit. 
But that is not how the Bible talks about us. The Bible is painfully honest. And honestly, I'm not pulling a B plus. I'm failing. And the longer I live, the more I see that God's holiness is so high. And the depths of my sinfulness is so deep, there's no way I could ever, ever achieve the standards that he sets for me. And so I can say with great confidence, I, Dan Lehman, am the chief of sinners. And so is Paul, and so are you. We are worse sinners than we ever imagined. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? I thought the gospel was good news, Dan, come on. Well, here's where the cheer up comes in. Even though you are a worse sinner than you ever imagined, at the very same time, you are more deeply loved than you ever dared to dream. You are more loved than you dared to dream. Uh, We've been focusing on the second half of verse 15, of whom I am the foremost. But what does the first half say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Pop quiz. Who did Jesus come into the world to save? Sinners. Sinners. Who who is it? Sinners. Of which I am the foremost. That's my girl. Did Jesus come into the world to save really good people? Did Jesus come to save the righteous? Did he come to save people with with their lives together? Does God only help those who help themselves? No, Jesus came to save sinners. Now, what this means, this is good news. What this means is that your status as the worst sinner in the world does not disqualify you from the grace of God. To the contrary, your status as the worst sinner in the world is your prime qualification for the grace of God. Jesus comes to save sinners. If you're not a sinner, he's not going to save you. The only way to be saved by Jesus is to admit that you're a sinner. He only saves sinners. That's all he saves. It also means that being the worst sinner, not just a marginal sinner, but the worst, is the best thing in the world for you. Because it means that you are supremely eligible to be saved. You have a large target on your back saying, please show me mercy. The biggest sinner is the biggest target for salvation. I don't know if this is sacrilegious or not, but imagine Jesus being like a young man on a date at a carnival. And he walks in with his date, and he says, I have come to win you a stuffed animal. Now, which stuffed animal is this guy going to go for? Is he going to try to win the little stuffed animals? <laughs> the booby prize, the ring toss? <laughs> no, he's going to go for the biggest stuffed animal there, because he wants to prove to his date that he is supremely qualified to win stuffed animals. In the same way, when Jesus comes to save sinners, he doesn't mess around with little sinners. He doesn't mess around with respectable people, with decent people. He's here for the big ones. And the good news is, you are a gigantic sinner. You are a massive target for the grace of God. Jesus loves to save people like you. Because it shows how amazingly qualified he is to save sinners. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 16. He says, I receive mercy for this reason. What reason? Because he's the biggest sinner in the world. I receive mercy for this reason, that Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
Jesus specifically chose Paul because of his sin, not in spite of it. He chose Paul because of his great sin in order to show the immensity of his grace and his love. Jesus doesn't walk around paying off $5 debts and $10 debts. Jesus walks around paying off million-dollar debts and billion-dollar debts and trillion-dollar debts, and he can do it all day because he's that rich. His grace is inexhaustible. And his grace is for sinners like you and me. So what does that mean? It means that even though you are and I am and Paul is the worst sinner in the world, God loves you. You are worse than you ever imagined, but at the same time, more deeply loved than you ever dared to dream. Now all this, all this is in the cross if you just have eyes to see it. It's all right there in the cross. Just think about it. On the one hand, the cross teaches us that we are incredibly bad. We are so bad that the only way that we can be saved is for the perfect Son of God to die in our place. That's how bad we are. If we were just a little messed up, if we just were, you know, we're 90%, we just need some extra credit, God could have done something different to save us. If we were just ignorant, Jesus could have shown up and just taught us, and that's all we needed. If we were just poor, God could have given us resources. If we were just powerless, he could have given us technology. But that's not what he did. He sent Jesus to die for us. The worst sinners in the world deserve to die. We deserve to die for our sins. The only way God could save us is for a substitute to die in our place. Someone perfect, someone who didn't deserve to die. The cross teaches us how bad we are. The only way we can be saved is for Jesus to die. But at the same time, the cross also teaches us that we are more loved than we ever imagined. Because it shows us that Jesus was willing to die. God loves us so much that Jesus was willing to die. God could have destroyed us for our sins. But what, is, what does Romans 5.8 say? Do you know this one? You should memorize this one. You should memorize Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Dan's parentheses, the worst sinners in the world, close parentheses, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross shows us God's love. Even though we were enemies, even though we deserve his wrath, Jesus loved us enough to die for us. This is the gospel, and it needs to be the bedrock truth of your life. You are, in reality, a worse sinner than you ever imagined. But at the same time, you are more deeply loved than you ever dared to dream. And when you get this, when it becomes not just something that you agree to mentally, but that forms the foundational truth of your life. It changes everything. And that's why I started by saying, cheer up, because this is great news. This is great news. There's so much to say on this. Um, I'm going to focus on just two things, two fundamental reasons why we should cheer up, because these things are true. So first, cheer up. You don't have to perform anymore. 
You don't have to perform anymore. You can get off the treadmill and just rest. See, all of us want love. We all desire love and acceptance. And, and according to the way of the world, there's a basic formula for love and acceptance. Okay? If you perform and do a basic minimum of, of, of required tasks, if you perform to a certain level, then you are loved and accepted. That's how the world works. This is baked into so many parts of our culture, whether it's the school system or work or sports. Right? If, you, if you get good grades, then you are rewarded. Right? You performed, you get acceptance, approval, love. If you do a good job at work, then you get promoted. Right? You put in the effort, you do the work, then you get accepted. If you hit the home run, we love you. If you strike out, we hate you. That's how our culture works. That's how the world works. If you perform, then you're loved and accepted. If you don't, you're rejected. Okay, now we import that into all of our lives. We import that into our relationships, into our families, into our relationship with God. We're always trying to justify ourselves and see, if I just do a little bit more, if I perform more, then I'll be accepted. And we wonder, we're filled with anxiety. Have I ever done enough? Have I done enough to earn your love and your acceptance? Just two weeks ago, I was at a pastor's conference. And I was dying because of this. So I'm in a room with all these other pastors. This is our um, denominational annual meeting. All these other pastors, we're all there, and we're starting off worshiping God in song, except I'm, I'm singing, but I'm not worshiping. Because my heart is not engaged in worship of the triune God who loved me and saved me. All I can think about is where do I stand in the pecking order of all the other pastors in this room? I know that guy is relatively famous. I know that guy has a bigger church than me. Uh, I know that guy wrote a book. I know that guy is pretty well connected in the denomination. Does anybody notice me? Where do I stand in this whole scheme of things? You know, ha- have I done enough? Have I, uh, have I performed enough? If they really knew me, would they know that, that I'm worthy of their acceptance, of their love? I share this, knowing how ridiculous it sounds. But that was the battle raging in my heart. And I suspect I'm not alone. That we all struggle in this way. Maybe you feel it when you go home to be with your family. Or when you come to church. At your workplace. Even with a spouse. In your relationship with God. You're wondering... Have I performed well enough to deserve your love? Do you know how the gospel answers that question? No. No. You haven't. You have not performed well enough to deserve love. And you never will. In fact, you are far worse of a sinner than you ever imagined. But here's the good news. At the same time, You are deeply loved, more loved than you ever dared to dream. At the same time that you are not worthy of performance, uh, not worthy of love because of your performance, God gives you love in spite of your performance. So this is the truth that I needed on that day, standing there with all the other pastors. 
I needed the truth, the hard truth, first of all, that, you know, if these other pastors really knew me, they wouldn't be saying, hey, Dan, you should come up on the stage and talk to us. They'd be saying, you are a miserable wretch. If they really knew me, they would have no love and acceptance toward me on the basis of my performance. But at the same time, at the same time, God knows me and loves me and accepts me. And his acceptance is the only one that matters. And so if I have his acceptance in the midst of my depravity, I can have confidence that it doesn't matter what these people think. And when that light bulb clicked, I could stop worrying about that and start worshiping the God who loves me. The same is true for you. The only opinion that matters is God's. And his verdict is in. He knows everything about you. And he loves you anyway. So cheer up. You don't have to perform anymore. There's no one left to impress. But at the same time, you can cheer up because you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to pretend anymore. Our world, again, is built on pretending, putting forward the best version of yourself that you can, can create. Uh, so what Paul does in 1 Timothy is, is unusual, to say the least. He is boasting of his failures. He's making sure that everybody knows the worst things about himself. That's not what we do. When you're putting together your resume, uh, you, you massage things, right? If you worked a summer job at McDonald's filling orders, you say... I did logistics in the food service industry. Right? Or if you sold newspapers door-to-door, you say, I spent the summer in journalism, internship. Um, we pretend. We put the best face on things. And we do this in church, too. Right? Things might be terrible in real life. Your world just falling apart. But come Sunday morning, you act like everything's fine. Somebody says, how you doing? Can I pray for you? No, things are good. It's good. Now listen, this is not, I'm not trying to insult you or anything, but I believe the Bible. And since I believe the Bible, I don't believe you. When you tell me that things are fine, that you've got no problems, you got it together, I just convinced that you are a lot worse than I see on Sunday morning. And you should also be convinced that I'm a lot worse than you see on Sunday morning. The church is not a collection of perfect people. We are a group of people whose most basic confession is, I am the worst of sinners. That is what unites us as a church. We say, I believe that Jesus came to save sinners, and I am a sinner. That's who we are. That's our defining creed. We are not people who have it together. Now, if that's true, if that's the fundamental nature of the church, we are sinners then why do we pretend as if it's not true? That's like going to an AA meeting and acting like you're just there for the donuts. Yeah, you other guys have problems, and I want to encourage you and help you in your problems, but I just really like that jelly-filled donut. That's, that's why I'm here. No, I don't have a problem. I mean, the whole point of those groups is, hey, we're here to help people who, who need help with alcoholism, and so to just even go there, to be a part of that group, is to admit that you have a problem with alcohol. And that's a good thing. The church is the same way. There are plenty other places in this world where you can go 
where you need to pretend like you have it together. There are other groups that organize around other principles. You know, we're here. This is a group for successful businessmen. You want to go to that group? You know, you got to be a successful businessman. That's not what we are. We are a group that organizes around the principle that we are the worst sinners in the world, that we cannot save ourselves, that we have no hope apart from Jesus. If that is our defining creed, then why would we act like anything different is true about us in reality? The good news of the gospel, here's the good news, is that you don't have to pretend. It's exhausting to pretend. It's exhausting to wear a mask, to make other people think that you're better than you are, to always filter everything and and pretend like everything's great and, and just guard your speech and wonder who can you be honest with. This is the place where you can be honest. This is the place where you can be real. You don't have to pretend. Now, I get it, of course. That's one thing to say that about God. Okay, it's true about God. You can bring anything to him. You can say anything to him. He's not going to write you off. He's not going to say, whoa, whoa, that's too much. No, he knows. He accepts you. He loves you. That's true. And it's one thing to say that about God. It's another thing to try to then take that and bring it into real life, flesh and blood, the people in this room. Okay, because we're not as good as God at accepting one another. The world still has its hold on us. We're still performance-driven people a lot. That's why we have to talk about this. If we keep growing, though, if we keep growing in our understanding of the gospel, if we keep confessing Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, if we keep doing that, then we will become more and more people who are open and honest, and vulnerable, and who accept one another like God accepts us. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of vulnerability. Don't be afraid to admit your sin. Nobody here is surprised. One of the options that we have to help us grow in this are the life transformation groups. One of the core principles of these groups is you get together in small groups of two to three, four people of the same gender, One of the things you're doing is that every week you're confessing sin. Why would we do that? Because we are the people who need a Savior. And every week we admit that we need a Savior. So if you want to grow in that ability, if you want to kind of step out on a branch there, let's try this out, I don't know. Dan talks a good game. (laughs) Sounds exciting, but are they really going to accept me? Are they really going to... Say it's all right. They're going to offer forgiveness or they're going to offer condemnation. I have a high degree of confidence in the people who are in our life transformation groups right now. If you're afraid to share, don't be afraid. Talk to me, talk to Jen. We'll get you connected with people who will readily acknowledge that they are sinners. And when you admit that, they will affirm you and offer the forgiveness of God to you and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Cheer up. You don't have to pretend anymore. I'm going to end with a quote. It's from Tim Keller. He's a pastor and he's done a great job of summarizing the beauty of the gospel. This is actually from his book on marriage. Here's what he says. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. 
It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. That's pretending. To be loved but not known. You're not letting anybody know you. You've got a mask on. And people like you. They like the fake you. And there's a certain bit of niceness to that. Like, all right, they like the fake me. But it's superficial. And you know, ah, they don't really love the real me because they don't know the real me. But you're afraid that if you show them the real you, then they won't love you. Okay, that's performance. You haven't done enough. It says to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Are, the only, are those the only two options? You can be loved but not known. Or known and not loved. No, there's a third option. There's the gospel. God knows you and loves you. He knows you. He knows you truly. He knows you deeply. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that deep down you are the worst sinner in the world. But at the same time, He loves you. He loves you completely, totally, radically. He sees you at your worst and gives you His best. And if God loves you, then you can be confident. You can live honestly without fear. You can live honestly without pretending. And you're ready for anything that life has to throw at you. So, cheer up. Cheer up. I'm trying to count the smiles out there. Not enough of you are smiling. Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever imagined, but at the same time, God loves you more than you dared to dream. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. It would be impossible to face the harsh truth of our sinfulness if you didn't swoop in with your grace and deliver us. Thank you for both sides of the gospel and the liberation that comes from believing it. Help us to be people who live without pretense, who live in obedience, not to earn your favor, but in a response to your grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.